Hello, this is John Huary, and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. For this episode, I met with Robin Barnes, Executive Vice President and COO of Greater New Orleans, Inc., which has a mission to work with local communities in building a New Orleans that is more robust and economically viable than ever. We met in GNO, Inc.'s high-rise office in downtown New Orleans and discussed the opportunities that disaster can bring, as well as Robin's experience building radical resilience in post-9-11 New York and post-Katrina New Orleans through work with local communities and their leaders. Thank you so much, Robin, for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you for, um, for talking with me. Absolutely. You have been working here for more than a decade. Correct. Uh, I've, I've, I moved to New Orleans um, over 12 years ago. But you're not from here. I'm not from here. So how did you get here in a moment or two? Tell us a story about how you get here. Well, I'm, I'm one of these odd um, disaster recovery professionals, which uh, has actually, since I started doing disaster recovery, which was after 9-11 in New York, um, disaster recovery has actually become a real field. Um, I think in the early days, it was largely the American Red Cross and FEMA, you know, and, and it was about emergency management. And now we have a much more expansive field of disaster recovery experts who are also now focused on resilience. Um, so I like to put those two together and, and talk about it as disaster resilience. So tell us your approach to resilience after spending nearly two decades in this space. One of the you know, greatest things I've learned about approaching resilience is uh, making sure that you have all the information that you need. And that information varies depending on what problem you're trying to solve, where you are, what form the disaster takes, who it's impacted, and all of that. So just to give you an example, after 9-11, um, where I didn't really know a lot about this, and I had to really understand what had happened, um, how the, the terrorist attacks impacted Lower Manhattan. I had to go down and spend time there. In New York City, I worked for an organization called Seedco, and Seedco was tasked by several foundations to first develop a resource guide around the disaster. And this seemed like a very unusual project because I thought, well, I'm sure others have a resource guide. I'm sure that there's information abounding in terms of uh, what resources are available, you know, whether uh, uh, someone who was impacted by the disaster, whether it be a small business or an individual, you know, financial information, legal information, that sort of thing. But really when we dug into it, there wasn't information available and we had to put it together. So there was information, American Red Cross had detailed information about their services, Various government agencies had detailed information about their services, and there were a lot of nonprofits that really jumped into action in Lower Manhattan, providing everything from a place to come and uh, talk to people to uh, services for people that were providing the emergency response, um, whether that be food or shelter, places to take a break, that sort of thing, to really thinking about you know how they were going to tackle the long-term impacts. But what didn't exist was a resource guide that really had all that information together. And I raise this as a, an example because it's actually become something very relevant in every disaster I've been in any kind of touch with, whether I've been directly working in it or indirectly working in it. 
It's always the first thing I say to people is put together the resource guide, give people the, the place to go, whether it's online or whether it's, uh, I think back in 9-11, it was actually a, a three, ring, three ring binder that we put together. And so what's the process for creating that, that resource guide? Interviewing all sorts of agencies and gathering their information and then compiling it. So it's not that hard, it's not a difficult thing to do but you have to go out and do it, right? Yes. Now it's a little bit easier because there's a lot of information online, but you have to help people understand where that information is and point to it and have one place where it's all compiled together. So again, that, that's sort of a fairly, I would say, simple uh, strategy, but where it creates resilience is that information then is now documented, it's in one place, if there's a subsequent disaster, and oftentimes that sort of resource guide is transferable to other types of you know, things that happen in communities. Now you actually have sort of a mindset of having a comprehensive resources all put together. And when you talk about recovery, you know, this is oftentimes uh, we do a great job at response. We, we support our neighbors in the moment. Mm -hmm. but recovery is days, weeks, months, years. How long does recovery take for a community to bounce back in your experience? It takes a long time, and this is where sort of after the immediate sort of the emergency has passed, right. and so that that's, that's where the people have food and shelter, they're safe, um, you have potentially brought back certain infrastructure that may have been taken offline, whether that's electricity or plumbing, that sort of thing where you really have kind of a, at least some stability, um, then you need to start looking at the future and how you're going to plan and how you're going to make investments. And that is one of the most challenging moments in any sort of recovery because the, the, the emergency, as, as traumatic and difficult as it is, it's very clear what the outcome is. The outcome is people's safety, the outcome is you know, that they have shelter, that they have food, that resources are distributed. When you actually start looking to what do you do next, you have a lot of questions, and it's not as obvious, and you have to make a lot of decisions. So uh, you, you have sort of this, this tension that happens at that point where you have people that want to, um, and policymakers and such, that say, we're gonna rebuild everything, we're gonna, we're gonna be back to normal before you know it. We're gonna do this quickly, we're going to get the money that we need, and we're just gonna do it. And then you have the reality set in, which is that money doesn't always flow quickly, right. um, that there's certain processes that need to happen actually to even activate the federal dollars. But you do have, usually, a fair amount of philanthropy and um, other resources that are activated, so you can sort of get started to some extent. But then you have to figure out what are your priorities? What are you gonna do first? And you've been saying you, and, and thinking of in abstract the concept. When you think about a community, though, who are those decision makers? You said indicated policymakers, you indicated philanthropy and other resources. Key players have to be at the table. But where did, let's, let's pick apart that tension that you've experienced and observed. Where, where does the push and pull come from? Is it with the community? Is it in the community? Is it with outsiders with expertise that have comments to give? How do you see that happening and unfolding? Well, it's, it's, um, it's very diverse. There's, there are numerous, I would call them, stakeholders. 
that are involved after a disaster. So, so that starts with those who have authority to make decisions, authority to allocate resources, authority to set policy. Pre-existing designated authority. Pre-existing, or you might have a situation where, um, like in Louisiana, where after Hurricane Katrina, Governor Blanco created an authority, the Louisiana Recovery Authority. It did not exist prior um, to Hurricane Katrina, but it quickly became a very important new entity that had to be created that really created the policies around the recovery in Louisiana and made uh, determinations about how monies would be spent and over what period of time and who would be involved in that. So you have uh, sort of that level of authority, but then you also have nonprofit organizations that simply get to work. And this is the, the wonderful thing about nonprofit organizations, and we talk about them all the time as having slack capacity. So nonprofit organizations are usually under-resourced and are always you know, looking for more resources to be able to build out their programs, but they also have an incredible capacity during a trauma, during a disaster, to activate the resources that they have and their constituents around whatever it is that needs to be accomplished. So you have that. And nonprofits also will range from you know, the, the sort of big national nonprofits like the American Red Cross, which arrive on the scene and have multiple resources that um, they're able to share with communities to community-based nonprofits if, in fact, they have not themselves been impacted. Philanthropy always, we have a, a track record in this country of philanthropy really showing up quite early. And also corporations. You have corporations like Walmart, for example, that you know basically activate the distribution of resources very quickly. And so you have a, a number of things that, you know, now that we've been through this as a country so many times, that just start happening at a local level and at a national level. But there's tension you indicated. So you have all these stakeholders, some with authority, some with desire, and then you have those affected that are in a position of vulnerability perhaps, or confusion, or dismay, uh, depending upon the circumstance that, that they're experiencing. When do they get brought into this process? You, you started a conversation talking about you go and you talk to people <coughs> and you learn. That's your approach to getting involved. Where do you see the best examples of the community, the affected, being a part of that recovery? Well, I'm going to give you an example of um, a community that I worked with really closely after Hurricane Katrina, and that was the fishermen. And so I moved here from New York City about six months after Hurricane Katrina. And at that point in time, uh, New Orleans was just, I would say, coming back online in terms of infrastructure, in terms of um, having a population that was starting to come back, and um, having a capacity to uh, take on recovery. And I came here actually thinking that I'd be working in New Orleans proper, doing disaster recovery, working with small businesses. The challenge for small businesses at that point in time, even though there was some infrastructure back and things were coming back online, is that we didn't really have the full population back. And small businesses didn't really know who their customers were going to be. If a neighborhood had been uh, destroyed or impacted, 
the restaurants or grocery stores in the neighborhood didn't have customers and weren't able to open. It was a bit of a chicken and egg because um, in some cases you'd have some people coming back in the neighborhood and they would need services, but the services were not yet able to be sort of self-sufficient. But anyway, the, the, the good news was that there actually were nonprofit organizations in New Orleans and, um, and a number of them immediately started to get to work and there was philanthropy that supported them. And I looked to see where our organization could really have some impact and reach some populations that weren't naturally connected to these organizations. And um, I actually, the head of Louisiana Economic Development at the time, um, ran into me at a, I think it was a town hall meeting. And he said, I want you to meet Sandy Wynn. She works in the, in the fishing community. And so I was introduced to a Vietnamese American woman and she started telling me about the fishermen. And she said, the fishing season is approaching. So this was the spring of 2006. And actually sort of right, you know, this time of year um, where we are right now. So it's March, I think that was either March or April. Anyway, the fishing season was about to open and yet many of the fishermen didn't have boats because their boats were either completely destroyed or damaged to some extent. They had lost their netting, they had lost the things that they needed, and they didn't have the cash flow and to actually invest. And can you describe, are these independent fishermen, one man, yeah, one boat? Yeah, these are, that is literally what it is. So these are uh, commercial fishermen, and a lot of them were shrimpers. We also worked at the time with oystermen. And, and it was really interesting because a lot of these fishermen were actually Asian. There's a large Asian community, largely Vietnamese, also Cambodian, um, who came to either they themselves or their um, parents came from Vietnam in the 70s. And, um, and they have now set up a whole community, largely in New Orleans East, but also in other parts of the um, region. But they fish out of Plaquemines Parish, uh, St. Bernard Parish and such. And so they were actually ready to get back to work, anxious to get back to work, but, but in that community, normally you'd borrow from your uncle or your aunt or your cousin and everyone helps each other out. Well, because everyone was impacted, nobody had the resources to help. So basically we were directed to that community and we, we looked into it, we learned, you, know, you do a lot of um, quick and dirty learning mm -hmm. <laughs> during disaster recovery because you need to know information, but you will never be able to know everything you wish you knew, right? So you, you, you learn enough to kind of get going, and then you know the best thing is to be able to modify as you move along, which is exactly how, what we did with this population. So we learned several things. We learned that the fishermen are incredibly hard workers, um, and that's a, a physical thing. They're out on the water, sometimes for several days at a time. And they do all, you know, they have deck hands and, you know, you may have a handful of people that are on any given boat. You have some larger boats that have more. And they have a business model, which is to fish, come back, sell what they have caught to the docks and turn around and go back out again. And um, so that meant that you had to sort of look at what was the complete supply chain of the fishermen. So it was the boats. It was the, the um, shops that sold the equipment to repair the boats. It was the docks that um, many of our docks were completely destroyed. The docks often had the fuel at the docks that basically supplied the diesel to the boats. The docks often also had 
the capacity to make ice, which the boats, you have to put ice on the boats um, so that when they uh, are trawling and they bring in their shrimp, they're bringing it in on ice. And then the, then the shrimp has to be stored at the dock on ice as well. So we started learning about sort of all these moving parts. And how did you come to, I mean, you're not a fisherwoman, right? You, this is not your industry. Yeah. In fact, you probably didn't even think that when you thought about small business recovery, you were gonna think about the fishing Never industry. Never occurred to me. <laughs> how did you start to learn these things? Um, I actually just went down to the docks and stood on those boats and toured and talked to people. And, you know, we had um, this uh, wonderful person, Sandy Wynn, who helped um, my colleagues and I understand what all these issues were and really helped us come up with the solution. So we needed to understand how much money did a fisherman need? What were the uses of those funds? Um, how were we going to be able to understand you know what was the what were what were their prospects going to be in terms of generating revenue and so we really did a crash course <laughs> and, on and commercial fishing in Louisiana amazing. and then um, you had said that they had a, a community of themselves that they'd have this familial relationships that sort of sustain them in in standard times before mm -hmm. this disaster was there did they have organization that was structured or was it very loose and sort of familiar but not structured? Was there an organization or a, a, a mechanism to reach them or was there capacity building that had to be done? Well, there are some um, associations in Louisiana, but I would say in this in the early days, right. it was really about going to the docks and the fishermen were basically hanging out at the docks because that's where they gathered their information. Um, and uh, understanding about what was going to happen. Sometimes we went to coffee shops. <laughs> Sometimes we went to gas stations because, you know, people would sort of be hanging out. Wow. And we sort of went to where they were. And when we were able to access, over time, the, the considerable funds that came down the line from the federal government um, for small business recovery in Louisiana, and we actually started doing intake for these programs, we never had to market them. <laughs> it, it, you know, we basically, marketing was putting the word out. And, but also we had to go to where the fishermen were. So it's kind of funny because I originally had an office at Seaco that was over at um, Xavier University. And so the, the president of Xavier University then was Norman Francis, who also was the chairman of the Louisiana Recovery Authority. So he had given my organization it was a community development organization, some free space there. And we started doing intake at Xavier. So at one point, Dr. Francis called me and he said, I've heard from a lot of people that there are fishermen wandering around campus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they were looking for our office. He said, I think we need to give you a very visible place on campus where you can do the intake so that they won't have, they won't be looking for your office, you know, which was sort of in a building with other activities going on. So it was amazing. He gave us a space that we could use, but also we found that we needed to, again, go to where the fishermen were. So we set up shop one weekend at a restaurant down in Venice in Plaquemines Parish, which is really at the tip of the boot of Louisiana, if you think about it. And we opened that restaurant to intake for our grant program um, that was funded by the federal government, but went through the state of Louisiana. And uh, the wives of the fishermen basically 
um, helped us get people through the process in terms of making sure there was sort of a, a line going. They were, we set up a, a copy machine there and they were photocopying the information that was, we were gathering from the fishermen. Was the restaurant fishermen. actually operating as a restaurant as well? Or was it? It a, was operating in a limited basis okay. as a restaurant, but that day it was closed to everything. And we had volunteers and our staff set up at long tables and we just started working um, with the fishermen, getting them through the application process. And oftentimes when you're working with the fishermen, in the Vietnamese community, you're actually working potentially with one of their children who's translating because they don't always speak English. So you really had sort of families that came in and got through this process. And we had a, a really special moment, I thought, when we would make an announcement in English and then somebody would translate it into Vietnamese and then somebody else would translate it into Cambodian. And so we really were, you know, working in that community in a way that was accessible to that community. And, and one, last, uh, one last story just about the fishermen, just in terms of how we were able to modify programs based as, as we kind of went along. And we were very lucky in that the state was very flexible. And when I would call them up and say, what's challenging about the guidelines of the program that you've laid out for small businesses for fishermen is that the fishermen have seasonal businesses. So, you know, the, the, the analysis that we were doing for other small businesses didn't really work with fishermen. Fishermen also do a lot of cash transactions. So the receipts that they have are a little bit different. But we worked through this process with the legislative auditors of the you know, state of Louisiana um, and with uh, those that were running the programs. Actually, one of the programs, um, the Small Business Recovery Program, was run by Michael Hecht at Louisiana Economic Development, and Michael's now the president and CEO of uh, Greater New Orleans, Inc. Wow. So it all comes together. When you talk about this, these fishermen, how many are we talking about? Well, it's a really good question because it is not a known quantity exactly okay. how many fishermen there are, but we're talking about thousands of fishermen wow. in, in Louisiana. However, we worked with several hundred several of them. Hundred. Yeah. And, and this example of one community where you know, you're not Vietnamese, you're not a fisher person, <laughs> uh, you're not even from Louisiana mm -hmm. originally, you became, I don't want to say part of the community, but you got to know the community well enough that did you have to earn their trust in this process? Absolutely. Did they, did they trust you or were there other people that were your they, agents? They trusted the people who introduced me to them. Gotcha. And, and so basically, you know, I connected with leaders in that community, and there were a number of them, and asked them to introduce me to those who might be able to take advantage of the programs that we were running. And so now you're over 10 years later. What is, what's your relationship with that community? Is it a fond memory and a, a great success, or is there a continued relationship with some of those leaders or some of that community with you? There's, there's continued relationship um, directly and indirectly. So directly, I'm uh, the, the woman I had talked to about previously, mm -hmm. Sandy Wynn, has now formed her own nonprofit. She worked for a different organization at the time, and we partnered with her. Um, but now she's formed a nonprofit called Coastal Communities Consulting. And I'm on the board of that nonprofit, and so that is a way uh, for me to, to sort of stay connected to that community, but also to be able to bring resources into that community through the philanthropy that this organization attracts and the programming that uh, they run. 
And then also I was introduced through my work in that community to some of the traditions. So for example, there's a tech festival every year, it just happened this year. And that is always, to me, a, a great time to go out to New Orleans East. And um, I usually bring friends and family who possibly have not been out there um, so that I can expose them to it. And there's all kinds of you know, wonderful rituals that happen as a part of that festival. And then, of course, fantastic food um, and music and such. So it's, it's super fun. And I, I just y make sure that I make the time to visit the community and eat in the restaurants and, and, and sort of keep that connection going. I'm going to pivot just a little bit uh, to talk about something that uh, I know that you guys have been promoting, and that is radical resilience. So tell me what your concept of radical resilience is, and did you coin the phrase, or uh, how did that come to be? So uh, Michael Hecht, who uh -huh. runs uh, uh, GNO Inc., coined the phrase. And so when we think about radical resilience, I think about it as you sort of, uh, the, that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. How I think about it in terms of disaster recovery and where we are is that there were, there were lots and lots of investments that were made post-Katrina. So it's everything from the $140 billion that was spent on flood protection, the levees, the pump systems, and such, to the $2 billion that was spent on the medical corridor, building new facilities, to now the, the billions that we're spending on um, restoring the coast, also investing in green infrastructure in Louisiana. And so you, you have a number of these sort of discrete investments that are, that are managed by many different entities. And when we think about radical resilience is sort of how do we add that up and build on it? Right, so how do we look at these investments and take it a step further? So I'll, I'll, I'll use the example of coastal restoration and green infrastructure, where we had um, developed, since Katrina, a coastal master plan, and also we now have, uh, my organization, we developed a urban water plan, the Greater New Orleans Urban Water Plan. So, so the state developed the coastal master plan, we developed the urban water plan, but what that gives us are, are two um, basically roadmaps for how we can help with managing sea level rise and subsidence by investing in river diversions, marsh building and such, and also managing stormwater and groundwater in the more urban settings. Mm -hmm. So those are investments in the environment and infrastructure, right? What GNO Inc looked at was how do we turn that into um, outcomes for the economy? The outcomes that the agencies that are implementing those plans are talking about are land building, flood reduction, things like that. The outcomes we are interested in, as, in terms of being an economic development organization, is industry and sector growth, job growth, improved quality of life, additional people that are investing and entities investing in the region, um, moving to the region, staying in the region, and such. And so we, we sort of take it a step further than the initial kind of recovery investment. And so what we've done, for example, around the environmental piece is we have named a sector called environmental management. And environmental management primarily is looking at water 
um, and how we've how we can sort of create jobs by managing our water issues but also um, we are expanding that to look at waste how do we deal with some of the contaminated waste that we're producing and but actually turn that into opportunities for companies and for innovation and job creation and the same thing with energy renewable energy so um, you know, it's, it's kind of exciting. So we have these outcomes that have happened over time. For example, at Michu, which is the NASA facility in New Orleans East, we now have between um, a company called LM Wind Power and a company called Blade Dynamics, we actually are working on through the supply chain for wind turbines in New Orleans East, which is kind of interesting. And so that's jobs, it's innovation, um, it's industry growth. In terms of water, we now have thousands of jobs that are associated with water. And so we needed to ensure that we could get people into those jobs and they would have the skills. So we started working with the schools of higher ed. And they've now started creating programming. Everything from UNO, who has a coastal engineering and science certificate program, which was industry driven. So we actually talked to companies that were hiring and we said, what do you need the schools to be educating students about so that they are actually ready to be employed by you? And they told us, we went to the schools, the schools created curriculum around that. We all, we've been working with Dillard University on creating a urban water management certificate program. And that really came out of data that we had looked at that said, if you looked at people of color, in jobs, middle school jobs, there was very good parity with people of color and white people. But if you looked at the higher school jobs, very little parity at all. So it meant that people of color really were not advancing in water management, but could if they had educators that were basically saying, here are the opportunities in those fields. So Dillard is not a school that is training engineers, however, their students have the potential to go on and get additional graduate degrees in engineering, architecture, urban design, hydrology, whatever it is, because now they're going to be um, educated uh, through the certificate program. So when you look at this concept of radical resilience, you're taking, the, it, what I'm hearing you say is you're taking the uh, investments in infrastructure, which is oftentimes sort of where people focus first, yeah. uh, and those systems, and saying, how do we make this benefit for the community? Exactly. And, and that community is the economic community, the people who live here, improved quality of life. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a, a fundamental that if we could get more folks to think about when they think about their recovery. We see you know, disasters happen every month in this yep. country. Uh, in California, our fire season yep. is like all year round now, and we see neighborhoods and communities almost wiped out. And so when they build back, if they build back the same way, how do they model that activity? Yeah. I think that's what, what we're looking for. So, so another example for of radical resilience is really looking at how we've been able to diversify the, the economy post-Katrina. Mm. And so we have industries that we, we call our, our uh, legacy industries, energy, um, advanced manufacturing, trade, that historically have created the jobs in the region, in addition to, in New Orleans, the uh, hospitality sector. So, and all of these sectors are still creating jobs. That hasn't changed, but what we knew would be sort of healthy for the economy is to have more diversity, more options for jobs. And so post-Katrina, 
we started looking at additional sectors to really focus on. So again, building on the investment in the medical corridor, we now have a sector that's bioscience. And that's really looking at technology innovations, mm -hmm. everything from, from uh, entrepreneurship and startups in that sector, to really creating more destination healthcare where people come to New Orleans for healthcare and starting to specialize in things that would bring them here. So that's one example. Another example is, um, and I, I talked about environmental management, um, which was one, but the other one is uh, digital media and technology. Mm. And so we did not have a large digital media and technology sector prior to Katrina. But post-Katrina, it became evident, and, and it started a little bit prior to Katrina. There was some work on um, tax incentives and such. Um, but that really, post-Katrina, that really became more of a mandate that we were going to develop that sector. And one of the reasons that that sector really works here is that, one, we have the quality of life that attracts uh, the people who are in that sector, and two, that sector doesn't require a lot of infrastructure. So that when and if there are disasters, it is going, that, that, kind of, that kind of sector is going to have more business continuity than other sectors. And that's just a really smart approach to thinking about if you're in a vulnerable community, you want to make sure that you have uh, a diversified economy and different kinds of jobs so that if any of those sectors are taken offline for a short period of time, others are going and continue to contribute to the economy. You said something here that made me think, I mean, are you, is this resilience building towards what in the next 10, 15, 50, 100 years, you may have the potential for a storm or a, a natural event, the, the size and scope of Katrina that comes back to this community? Or is it, is that in your mind as you're doing these programs that this resilience is geared towards that? Well, I think it's broader, okay. right? So, so there's there's the part of us that is always working towards, you know, the what if there's another catastrophic event and being prepared for it and doing everything that we can to kind of build, um, doing everything we can to be able to provide more buffers. So, coastal restoration is actually about providing more buffers mm -hmm. to the storm so they don't come at you know inland the extent <laughs> that they are, um, and flood protection and such. Mm -hmm. But part of it is just smart economic development, you know, which if we were somewhere else in the country, we would be doing, which is you want to have a diversified economy, you want to have a good quality of life, you want to make sure that if people come to um, your city for a job, that they stay um, because they have the housing that they need, they have the schools that they need for their kids, um, they have quality of life. You know, we, we have a lot of people who come for music, who come for food. We want them to stay. You know, we want we don't want them to spend the weekend and just leave. So, you helped form the Coalition for Coastal Resilience and Economy. And I want to, and coalitions are really powerful tools. Could you tell me the process by which you go about sort of building coalitions for resilience, essentially? Um, and then how do, you, how do you keep them going? How do you keep them moving forward and maintaining relevance? That's a really good question. So the Co Coalition for Coastal Resilience and Economy, we also refer that to a CCRE, mm -hmm. is a group of business leaders in the region who decided that they wanted to be very vocal about the need for coastal restoration. And these are not companies that 
are getting contracts with the state to implement coastal restoration. They don't have personal interest in coastal restoration happening, but they are banks, law firms, developers, advanced manufacturing, CEOs, technology companies that have a vested interest in, in the region being here, right? So if you sort of think about it from a business continuity perspective, you want to make sure that the place in which you do your business and where your supply chain is, is going to be here, <laughs> right? So they, they, they need to know that that's going to happen, right. right? So they also, you know, the other thing was that the, the business community was actually the missing voice in terms of the advocates for coastal restoration. So you have lots of wonderful advocates for coastal restoration. We have um, tremendous environmental partners, for example, that we work with that we count on to help us understand the science and understand the policy uh, behind everything. Um, and, and they're great advocates and very articulate. You have community leaders and such. You have um, elected officials. You have a number of advocates, but oftentimes the business community is missing in terms of advocating for environmental endeavors, right? So we basically came, approached our board, and we said, let's think about what we have to lose if we're not investing in the coast. That's everything from economic assets related to commerce. We have ports that are dependent on um, the environment being there, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which has everything to do with sort of commerce and trade and, and a huge part of our economy. We have tax bases along the coast that we would like to preserve as long as possible. Um, because as long as you have a tax base and people living on the coast, you have stewards of the coast and you have investment. And if everyone sort of picks up and leaves, you lose all of that, right? So preserving an economy on the coast is actually smart. Um, we have jobs on the coast. We don't have people in Louisiana that elect to live on the coast because they want to live by the water as much as we have people whose jobs are dependent on it. So whether you're in the oil industry and you're working um, at, on the coast, if you're uh, working out on the rigs or if you're working at the um, refineries that are in that area, you need the coast to be there. We can't, it's not gonna work if the coast keeps eroding, right? And if we keep sinking and subsiding. Um, fishermen rely on the coast to be there so that they can fish. There's just numerous businesses along the coast and, and that goes back generations, right? So it's not an easy solution to just pick up and leave. And it's not a smart solution to do that. So, so basically our business leaders started learning about coastal restoration. We took them up in seaplanes, we took them out in boats, briefings from uh, scientists, briefings from the state, our Coastal Protection Restoration Authority. And this is all to get them engaged in the issue. All to get them engaged in the issue and start thinking about the role that they can play. So initially the role that they have played has been around communicating to um, other business leaders, testifying. So every year uh, we have the annual plan of our Coastal Protection Restoration Authority goes to the state legislature. So we generally have business leaders that testify about the importance of that. We also have gone to DC and spent time with OMB, um, with uh, CEQ, the White House and such to Department of Commerce to advocate for investments in coastal restoration as being investments in the economy. 
So that, that sort of has been the work up until now. That's transitioning a little bit because we now have a coastal master plan in place. We have pretty good um, track record every year for having that plan be approved with very little pushback. And, and we now have some monies from the BP oil spill that are coming down the pike, some are already being spent, um, and some other resources, but we don't have enough money um, for our $50 billion plan. And so that what's really kind of interesting is that our business leaders are now taking a business approach to thinking about how do we finance the Coastal Master Plan in the long run. So there's two things we need to accomplish. One is we just are always going to need more money. Not only do we need money to construct projects, we need money to maintain the projects, operate them and maintain them. But the second thing that we need is we need to do the projects more quickly than the money is available. And so the BP oil spill money, just as an example, is spread out over several years. So now we're looking at, can we bond out some of that money? Is that possibility? We don't know the answer to that right, yet, right. but these are the kinds of things we're exploring. And this is, again, where business leaders can, can come into action. So I think from, from our perspective in forming this coalition is we actually brought the business community along on the value to them of implementation of the Coastal Master Plan. And why do they stay involved? They stay involved because this is an ongoing process. We're going to be doing this um, for the next few decades, and we're just going to need that engagement and investment, and they know that. And so once they're in, they're in. They're absolutely in. And, and now we actually um, have more and more people that want to be involved. Um, and so that's great. So that coalition is starting to really grow. That's terrific. I want to talk about the opportunity of disaster. Right? We know that disasters can be tragedies, but the work you've been doing and the work we've been talking about really relates to how do you come from the disaster and move into something not just to get back to where you were, but better than you were. How can a community, let's talk about a generic community somewhere in America, how can they position themselves before something happens to say, here's where we could think about being after the fact? How does what's that opportunity look like? Well, there are many ways to look at that. So one is um, that I believe that all communities now need to anticipate disaster, right? And that is not something that I think people thought about 10 years ago, 20 years ago. You know, before we started experiencing these catastrophic events, disasters were largely limited to discrete flooding events, fires, tornadoes, but those generally had a, a boundary to them and that you could really say, well, this disaster impacted this very specific area and you could measure it and you, know, you could sort of understand how to um, recover, right? Now we have these more ongoing and more catastrophic events and our weather looks completely different and that's not gonna change. Now we have fires that are taking on a, you know, uh, the impact that we've never experienced before. And, and we also have the situation where the places that never expected that they were going to experience a disaster are experiencing a disaster. So, so one is that, you know, we need to, and as a country, we need to be better at planning and about making really smart investments. So whenever you have the opportunity to make an investment, it should be a smart investment. And you should be thinking about 
um, you know, managing stormwater. You should be thinking about seismic shocks. You should have the policies and regulations that support different types of building. So that, that's sort of one way of looking at it. But the other way, you know, is when you think about sort of the people and who's involved, how does that, you know, from a regulatory piece, that's, that's something that people talk about and, you know, are that, that's sort of happening. But when you think about sort of people, um, it's how do we start communicating this to people so that, for example, everybody purchases flood insurance, right? So if everybody purchased flood insurance, even if they are not in a flood zone, even if they have not had a history of flooding, the National Flood Insurance Program is going to be a healthier program, right? So there are certain things that we can just simply start doing as a country that will be incredibly helpful, but also how we plan. So we talk a lot about, uh, for small businesses, recovery planning and um, business interruption planning. Again, something that every business should do. Doesn't matter where you are, you should do it. You should be prepared that something's gonna happen in your community that's gonna take you offline for 10 days. And are you gonna be able to manage that? But I think the bigger issue is the long-term resilience and you know, something that we don't do because, often because our, our elected officials have terms, right? Mm -hmm. So what we have is a history of planning within a term. And then a new term starts, a new administration comes in, and then we, you know, basically have a different plan. And I think what we're starting to see here, we've definitely seen it here in New Orleans, is more um, smart transitioning of investing in resilience and, um, and not kicking the can. And I think that's the probably the most important thing for all of us to do, wherever we sit, whatever office, whether we're a public official, whether we work for a nonprofit, whether we're business leadership, is to not be kick the can. You know, it, it's not about the next shareholder meeting, it's not about the next administration, um, it's not about the next election. It is really taking the long view and having, you know, your, your vision be go beyond you and to the next generations and how are we making investments now um, so that that those next generations can thrive awesome okay we have our lightning round now robin uh, what leader has influenced you in your work I, i'm gonna because i talked about her earlier i'm gonna say sandy Wynn as a local leader um, because she really taught me how to move into communities that I had no experience with in the past and, um, and have impact. Okay, what book has changed the way you think about your work in communities? Uh, for me, it was a book I read a long time ago in grad school, um, The Power Broker, and I think that was, uh, helped me understand sometimes how not to do things. What city, other than, th other than those you worked with, um, is doing great things regarding resilience? Who do you look to as like, oh, that's interesting, I'm, I'm learning from them? Right now I'm looking to Norfolk. Um, and I mean, so I just want to preface by saying there are a lot of great cities right, right now that are doing a lot of interesting work. But Norfolk has captured my attention because they're managing a challenge that they face um, in surge, but they haven't had a disaster that is providing them with the resources to be able to manage it, so they have to be really creative. And they also have the Navy there. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, Norfolk is such a critical city to the United States, 
So I've been spending a lot of time sort of looking to them. Cool. Uh, what's the first place you turn to for information when working to understand an issue? It's not a place as much as picking up the phone and calling people. Great. Um, what's something great about the greater New Orleans area that the rest of the country might not know? What's really great about Greater New Orleans is the diversity of neighborhoods and experiences that you can have here. I think sometimes the rest of the country thinks about New Orleans and visualizes perhaps a stretch of Bourbon Street, um, which actually doesn't represent the entire region, which is an incredibly scenic region with lots of different options for quality of life and food and music, and it's just great to explore. What advice would you give a 25-year-old you? Wow, that's interesting. The, the advice I give 25-year-olds all the time is to be opportunistic. Okay. So I would just, um, I, think I, I think someone else gave me that advice when I was 25, but I, I go with that every time. What's an unexpected thing a city can do to attract new businesses? Gosh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that the, the unexpected answer there is to talk about quality of life. What's the best career decision you ever made? Moving to New Orleans. Okay. And so far, what has been your proudest professional moment? I have to say I was asked to be on, the, on President Obama's Hurricane Sandy Rebuilding Task Force, and that was a pretty exciting moment. Yeah, great. Well, Robin, thanks so much for sharing your insights on community <coughs> and this community especially, and as it relates to recovery and, and resilience. I appreciate the time. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence. And for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.